A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, still on the mend after two weeks of fighting to maintain my voice. I know, it's my problem. I'll quit complaining about it. I'm just glad to be here. There is so much going on. There is so much that needs to be said. And by gar, I want to be the one to say it, but uh, I've been fighting against nature here for a little bit. Our show is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and LifesavingFood.com. I'm going to have some kind words for each of these sponsors. You can also check out uh, the links to each one of them in the show notes <clears throat> at thebrianhideshow.com. So, where to begin? There is just so much going on here. A um, couple of things. If you are seeing the the supply chain breakdown, <clears throat> and you'll see it a little bit when you're grocery shopping, depending on where you live, Some people are saying, no, I'm not really seeing empty shelves. Other people are saying, yeah, it's looking like a hillbilly smile. Lots of lots of gaps. And, you know, they're wondering, why is it that some things seem to be in fairly short supply? Others are saying, well, it's, uh, you know, it's a problem of uh, the the truckers and it's the, the Teamsters. We have all these ships sitting off the coast, you know, waiting to be unloaded. And I admit, you know, it's... It's kind of scary from the standpoint that uh, we're headed into winter. <clears throat> Inflation is definitely kicking in. Who knew? You know, you dump three or four trillion dollars into the economy and suddenly prices go up. I actually saw one economics professor who was saying, well, you know, it's obvious why this is happening. This is just greedy business owners raising their prices. And I think, oh, my goodness, how did you become an economics professor? With, with that limited understanding of, of how it works, the more dollars added into the economy, the more the purchasing dollar, the purchasing power rather of each dollar is watered down. And when you start doing that on the scale of trillions of dollars, quantitative easing to the moon, you know, month after month after month, I believe they've been dropping in, you know, a hundred billion dollars. They, the Federal Reserve System. Yeah, it's going to it's going to make prices go up because you've got to more dollars chasing the same amounts of goods and services. At any rate, the prices are going up. The quantities are are shrinking, so you got shrinkflation, and in some cases there's a breakdown in the supply chain that's making it very difficult to get things to the store shelves. I wanted to play a little clip for you. This is uh this is from ABC News Prime Time. And it's a number of officials uh, at the, uh, I think it's at L.A. Harbor, being interviewed about uh, why are all these ships sitting out there and what's on these ships. But I want you to listen very closely to what one of the experts in this uh, clip, it's just a very short 38-second clip. Listen to what this expert says about what it's going to take to get things flowing again. Maybe this will surprise you, maybe it won't. Again, this is from ABC News. What is sitting in all these containers behind us? 
everything. Longshoremen telling me some of these containers have been sitting here for six months, with a shortage of truck drivers to get the goods on the highway and into stores. It's not just making things harder to find, it's making them more expensive. Today we face an economy that's in transition. And as part of that transition, we are seeing high prices for some of the things that people have to buy. But the reality is that the only way we're going to get to a place where we work through this transition is if everyone in America and everyone around the world gets vaccinated. That's why the president continues to be focused on the idea that we get everyone who can vaccinated in this country. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to promote a conspiracy theory here, but uh, he just did say, if we want to see this crisis end, we've got to get everybody vaccinated. That legit sounds like they are threatening to hold goods until the people in power with the regulatory power are satisfied with the level of forced vaccinations. I don't know. It's, you know, it's possible. Maybe I'm reading more into it than, than there is. But that is really disturbing. Because what that would mean is the supply chain crunch that uh, a lot of us are about to get intimately acquainted with as we head into the Christmas season and head into winter very likely is is being done deliberately. I know, that's that's a chilling thought. Why would they do that? And again, it comes down to, well, because uh, there aren't enough people getting vaccinated. Now, I want to play something else for you, and this is... <clears throat> this is a fascinating clip uh, from, uh, I don't remember who put this together, but it's it's the devolu- devolution of COVID vaccine efficacy. And it starts with about three clips of Dr. Anthony Fauci telling us how effective the vaccine is. So listen to, to the statements that he's making here, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, what this video goes on to show. So now we have two vaccines that are really quite effective. The mRNA vaccine, highly effective. Extraordinarily efficacious, 94 to 95% for mild to moderate disease and virtually 100% efficacious. Because the real world effectiveness is even more impressive than the results of the clinical trial. Okay, and then they start showing headlines. Vaccines are safe. Vaccines said to be powerfully effective. COVID vaccine, highly effective. And it's just headline after headline after headline. But something happens <clears throat> over the next minute and a half of this video. They start with uh, the Novax jab, 100% effective, 100% effective. Headline after headline saying the vaccine is 100% effective. And then suddenly, uh, 99%? The number steadily goes down. And by the way, whoever put this to the Hall of the Mountain King, kudos to you. This is really good. Oh, 84%, 82%, 81%. The headlines stated with perfect certainty. 75%, 74% effectiveness. 72%, 70%, 69%. And it just keeps going. 59%, 58%, 59%, 58%, 57%. Oh, look at this. Now it's down to 50%. Oh, 42%, 41%, 39%, And then we're talking about boosters. We've got to make sure we clarify that with people. It has nothing to do whether or not it's effective. We know it's highly effective. Anyway... So when you hear people talking about how, well, you know, you just got to be fully vaccinated because the vaccine is effective. 
You know, they, they can say what they want about, uh, you know, the vaccine hesitant and how it's really just a bunch of angry Trumpsters out there, you know, flexing their little puny muscles about how they're mad. Their guy, you know, didn't uh, didn't retain the office after the election last year. Baloney. There are an awful lot of people, and I would include myself among them, who look at this and I see the story that I see being played out over those headlines. And these are mainstream headlines. These are this is MSM. Stating this with certainty, well, you know, here we go. This is this is 100% effective, 100% effective. And then you watch it over time as that number comes down, down, down. Yeah, there's a story in there. And it's the most trusted, you know, face in America. He's got his own action figure, Dr. Fauci. He's going to save us. But it's very clear something here doesn't add up. Which leads me to wonder, well, why are they pushing so hard then? And I don't have the answer, so I, you know, I'm not going to tell you, because it's the nanobots in the vaccine, they've got to get them into your bloodstream so that they can track you and manipulate your mind. I don't know what the, what the real reasons are. All I know is somebody is turning up the tyranny hardcore. And that is a huge concern. And it has been all along. And And here's the crazy thing about it. People like me, and there were lots of folks out there who vigorously resisted the prospect of, you know, masking up because it just felt like this is more about control than it is about actually, you know, trying to prevent some kind of of illness here. And that desire to stand up against that tyranny wasn't selfishness and it wasn't just being an ideologue. It was to prevent us from coming to a place where we are right now. The place where we are being told, look, if you want to participate in society, you want to work, you want to buy food, you want to be able to uh, to interact in society, you got to you got to take the vaccine. I mean, it's tempting. Look, you know, society wants to excommunicate me if I don't do exactly what they say. I got to admit, I'm kind of tempted to say, well, good, (laughs) go ahead, excommunicate me, kick me out. I didn't want to hang out with you anyway. But it's putting a lot of people's livelihoods on the line, their mental health obviously on the line. How did we get here? We're going to take a quick look at that when we come back. Actually, uh, we're going to talk first, though, about the moment of decision that every single one of us faces. You think you can avoid it? The answer is no. Every man, woman, and child comes to a moment of decision of whether to go along with something wrong, to sit silent in the face of it, or to walk away from it. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You have heard me talking in the last few weeks about uh, growing concerns over emptying store shelves and a breakdown in the supply chain. And you've also heard me encouraging you, hey, might be a good time to contact my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com, and get yourself uh, a little bit of a little bit of a padding, you know, a little, little bit of breathing room in terms of putting away some food storage, something that uh, could be there for a rainy day. And one of the things that I have been very careful to point out is that it's a great time to do this because... There is still plenty of supply in terms of uh, freeze-dried and dehydrated foods. 
And I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, there there are starting to be some shortages and some breakdowns in the supply chain there as well. Now, my goal here is not to scare you. Okay, so I, I'm not trying to fan the flames of fear and, hey, you better do this, you're going to die. But the consequences are catching up. The time to act, the window in which to act and to, to get yourself prepared, it's not going to stay open indefinitely. Take from that what you will. Make of it what you will. What you do with this information is, of course, up to you. <clears throat> but... I don't know that it's something that you can safely ignore. And so I would strongly encourage you, if, if you're going to be making a move on this, might be a good time to do it. Now, here's the good news. My listeners will get a 20% discount. So all you have to do is uh, put in my last name, Hyde, as the coupon code at checkout. Please take advantage of it. You know, if, if you're already squared away, great. You know, maybe you've got neighbors or friends or family that, that could use some help, but... Just know the the shortages are starting to kick in. It's going to become more widespread. Don't be one of the people caught unawares. All right. On that note, let's let's move along here. So every single one of us has this moment of decision. Every one of us. And you think that you can avoid it. But the truth of the matter is it will <clears throat> it will come to every man, woman, and child where you have to decide, am I going to go along with what's happening here? Am I going to, you know, stand against it? Well, the past 20 months have given us a lot of experience in this firsthand. And Thomas Luongo has an excellent article that talks about how it's time for all good men to stop fearing John Galt. Now, yes, this is a this is a reference to uh, Atlas Shrugged, but I think we're we're rapidly approaching some some very strong parallels to Atlas Shrugged. And here's what he has to say. He says there comes a point in every person's life where they have to reckon with the person in the mirror. Who am I? What do I want? <clears throat> where am I going? And since the beginning of the COVID-9-11 story, he says, I've watched it break so many people who couldn't answer these basic questions. Have you been in that situation? He says, the fear of the virus uncovered a lot about all of us. But unfortunately for a lot of people, it provoked their inner tyrant. Like last year during the height of the COVID insanity, He says, after publicly hanging up on an unhinged Lee Stranahan live on Sputnik Radio, this is what he tweeted out. Thomas Luongo said, when you hit someone's existential fear, that's when you uncover their inner tyrant. When something is beyond their capacity to understand, that's when they turn to projecting that fear on other people. And he says, that's what was done to justify the lockdown. Now, this wasn't really directed at just at Lee, but he says it was in some ways. He says the hard investigative journalist of February 2020 turned into a sniveling, state-worshipping baby by late April of last year. And I like the analogy he uses here. I mean, I, you know, he's calling names here, but he's the point is his, his friend's fear of death uncovered his Room 101. That incident, among others, eventually took down his radio show with certified stand-up guy Garland Nixon. But today their show is just a former shadow of itself, 
a shadow of its former self, rather. Now, Tom Luongo says, I don't know if my action was the catalyst for the changes that came, but he says, I do know after that day, nothing was the same. And he says, the sad truth is that Lee wasn't alone. His collapse was just the most public version I ran into personally. When you buy into fear, he says, you sell your reason. Gone is your skepticism as your world collapses, your eyes focus on the next step, too afraid to raise them to the horizon. And there is no bigger picture, just the moment. So for months now, we have lived among people being terrorized by a story, not a virus, but a story that told them they are heroes for being afraid and the skeptics are villains. And he says, to save ourselves, we just have to give up our humanity and submit to an authority incapable of telling us the truth. Because the truth we had is, the truth is, he says, we had very little to actually fear. These are the real villains, the Fauci's, the Biden's, the Schwab's, the Saki's, the Trudeau's, and anyone else who still believes their patter. He says it was never about the disease. It was about control and the real damage being done to our psyches, our bodies, and our communities. Exactly as he was arguing to Lee on the radio 18 months before he hung up on him. They created the fear and then manipulated it into something violent. They preyed on our common decency and humanity, twisting it into something evil, which is now plain for anyone who lifts his eyes off the ground to see. Because vaccine mandates are the ultimate form of state violence, the death penalty notwithstanding. Once they had a large enough segment so terrorized they would rather die than admit they'd been duped, those villains pushed the ultimate Hobson's choice on us, get the vaccine against COVID-9-11, and you can have your life back. But he says it was never their life to take in the first place. We gave it to them, hoping they weren't as evil as many suspected. And it's amazing how just one year after a summer of looting and burning over police brutality against a black man who overdosed on fentanyl, these same people are making excuses for even worse police violence against people walking around in sunshine, unmasked. To them, we are the untermenschen, the unvaxxed, the unclean. And that makes their violence justified because to them, we're the ones keeping things from getting back to normal. Once the threat from COVID-9-11 was established... He says rationality should have returned, but it hasn't. Too many people are still stuck in room 101, wedded to their shame over being duped by villains. And he says they now wish death on co- by COVID on those who refuse to get a shot for a virus that has a defined low probability of killing them and for which multiple therapeutic options are available. If they would just shut up, trust the science, and let doctors practice medicine, life would really return to something close to normal. But he says it's increasingly obvious to enough people that these mandates don't measure up to the threat of the virus. Every day it becomes clearer that this is about their fear of us seizing back the power we gave them. And to save themselves from the COVID, they wish it on us, just like Winston Smith, who looks in the mirror and betrayed his love to serve a master who hates him as much as he hates himself. It doesn't matter if the vaccines are safe and effective or not. He says, I'm not here to argue that. That's your personal choice. Make it as you see fit. No blame, no shame. What's important is that it is no one else's choice. And he says, further, it's not to your personal choice to tell me I can't partake in civil society if I don't get the shot. Or like Joe Rogan, choose a different path to treating COVID than you would. By the way, if you haven't seen uh, Rogan's interview with Sanjay Gupta from CNN... 
Rogan flat out calls him on the carpet. Why did these MFers lie about me saying I was taking horse dewormer? There's a there's a clip linked in the article. And Tom Luongo says Winston always had a choice. In 1984, he could choose to face his fear and finally become a man like Joe Rogan, or he can project his fear onto real men and stay in his personal hell for all the world to see. By the way, he uh, <laughs> he uses a, a thing of uh, Keith Olbermann. Um, anyway, you have to see the clip. Keith Olbermann, I mean, he literally gets to spittle-flinging, like spit dripping down his chin as he's yelling at the camera unhinged about everybody's afraid, afraid of the vaccine. It's sad, but that's that's legit mental illness you're seeing coming out there. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article here from Thomas Luongo. This is from lourockwell.com, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers, just in case you're interested. Actually, I have a whole page on my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, which has great resources for people like you who are more interested in learning about the truth than about just, you know, getting the latest talking points of here's what you should fear, here's who you should hate. And speaking of hatred... There is a there is a video clip that uh, that Luongo includes in his article of Keith Olbermann going after Joe Rogan. And when Joe Rogan was calling out, you know, Sanjay Gupta and saying, you guys lied. You lied about me saying I took horse dewormer when, in fact, I took ivermectin, which was prescribed to me by a doctor. And Sanjay Gupta, I well, he there was no mea culpa there. There was no, well, you know, we're really sorry. That was that was a crappy thing to do. It was just like, yeah. They shouldn't have done it. What are you going to do? But Joe Rogan asks the question, if they would lie about something like this, then he says, would they lie to us about things like Syria? Which is a good point. The credibility of the mainstream media, already on pretty shaky ground with a lot of people, just got a little more shaky. So Rogan speaks the truth. He takes a lot of hits for it. And of course, Keith Olbermann, you know, who who is uh, just absolutely unhinged, responds. Oberman tweeted out, hey, Joe Rogan, nice to hear you paused from gargling goat urine or whatever you did for over instead of overcoming your fear of the vaccine to call me unhinged for pointing out what terrified, terrified snowflakes you and your clown car of followers are. And Oberman just goes off. And I, I wish I could play this for you, but there's he's he's pretty profane. That's just Keith. And I don't mean just, you know, though he says bad words, he's like spittle flinging, like there's spit flying out of his mouth as he's trying to express himself. They're afraid. They're afraid. And he just goes on and on. Tom Luongo says, watching this man's two minutes of hate is revealing of everything that's wrong with the COVID story. And he says that same choice is now directly in our path, vaxxed or unvaxxed. Now, this is an unpleasant truth, and, and this is something not a lot of people want to consider, but COVID is never going away. Neither will the flu, and neither will the common cold or any other virus endemic to the environment. 
He says, life is risk and it belongs to those willing to face those risks to keep the world from breaking. So cower in fear if you like, but scapegoating the unvaxxed won't save you. He says, I saw this in March 2020, saying we have to be brave and celebrate everyone willing to go to work to make the things we need to treat the sick and protect the healthy. But in a real economy, everyone is an essential worker. And that's because everyone contributes in their small way to the fully functional world that ensures the shelves are stocked, the energy flows, and our meager triumphs over nature's hostility to our presence remain in place. Tom Luongo says, for months now, we've been openly threatened with having our lives taken away because we don't have our party registration papers up to date. We've all wrestled, at least at some level, with our disbelief that things would degrade this badly and this quickly. And then the Obermensch, Keith Oberman, tells us we can be friends again after we just get the damn shot. But what he won't admit is that we know he's lying. Keith hates us for the mirror we hold up in front of him. Take a long look. That is the face of shame. Because ideals are judges. Those ideals only shame men capable of admitting it. The rest sink into solipsism and insanity. Now, in Ayn Rand's novel, John Galt built the engine that could change the world, but he refused to give it to the world he lived in. The Obermenches would just use it to perpetuate their power, their evil. Who is John Galt? Tom Luongo says he's that best version of ourselves that knows who we are, what we want, and where we will end up. And he says it's past time we stopped fearing the loss that comes with stating that directly. The strike of the productive and the self-aware Rand is envisioned, that Rand envisioned rather, is here. The airline pilots and Ubermensch class of people, if there ever is one in this sick, sad world, walked out over the last weekend, taking most of Southwest Airlines staff with them. And the Ubermensches are furious, openly lying about what happened and castigating anyone who says otherwise. It was weather. It was weather. And we're supposed to pretend. Yeah, they're right. It was just weather that couldn't have anything to do with people being forced to undergo a medical procedure they didn't want. But Tom Luongo says we shouldn't care. Just like we shouldn't care that Sanjay Gupta, after Rogan's shaming, was forced into a public struggle session to retain his place at CNN, proving to all the world that he is a man without principles, ideals, or shame. Tom Luongo says, as I write this on October 15th, vaccine mandates go into effect all around the Davos-controlled world. And the choice is now in front of hundreds of millions of people. Becoming your own version of John Galt comes with loss. It means giving up something today to retain not just your integrity, but to provide strength to those not quite there yet. Everything rests on giving them your consent. The Obermenches do not negotiate. They bully But Tom Luongo reminds us, bullies are cowards. And your consent today feeds their their addiction rather to fear. Now here's an interesting thing. He's taken this up a notch and saying, you know, previously I've told you quietly, just say no to them. Now he says, I'm telling you, that takes the form of withdrawing consent completely. Risking today's comfort for tomorrow's benefit. The strength you display today is the foundation of a world we build back better then the one is gone. And Tom Luongo says, I had a good gig with Sputnik Radio, <clears throat> but I owed them nothing. But he said, when the mask of civility fell, it was time to go. 
And he says, we all wear that mask at times, but only with those worthy of reciprocating. So all things come to an end, good and bad. What matters is who we choose to be, what we want, and unafraid of where those choices lead us. That's a pretty good pep talk. I rather like it, and I think he's, uh, I think he's on the right path here. I mean, I, 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 a good friend of mine and, and a longtime listener said, well, you know, I've, I've, I've missed you as, uh, as, you know, you've been struggling with laryngitis. You know, he says, who else is going to tell us how the world's on fire? And I'm like, <laughs> guilty. Yeah, I, I, I'm talking about stuff that I know for a lot of people is uncomfortable because these, these are some very uncomfortable truths. And the only thing I can offer in my defense is, uh, yes, it's true. Some of the stuff that I'm, that I'm sharing with you on a daily basis is hard to face. It's hard to face for me. And supposedly, you know, that's my job. That's, that's what I do. But um, it's, it's hard to face because it means that uh, we're going to have to acknowledge that uh, the, the comfort and the prosperity and the ease of life that we enjoyed, at least for a time, is gone. That doesn't mean we're always going to live in some kind of abject, you know, terror or otherwise, you know, servitude. But, but what we had before has shifted. And what we have now is different. And different is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Look at the people who are having to choose between their job and undergoing a medical procedure that they do not want. Some people just feel like they don't have the option of refusing the jab. And I feel a duty insofar as I can to, to be there for those people, to support them. Um, if I can't support them financially, at least morally and, and you know, spiritually, I can support them. But they're putting very real things on the line. They're putting their livelihood. They're putting their reputations. And the thoughtless crowd is very eager, you know, to, to pick up the stones that they're going to give them a good public stoning with. This is one of those times where if you're going to be a person of principle, you're going to have to be courageous. There, there is no other way. You've got to be courageous about how you do it. And uh, that means we, we've got to be able to, to recognize tyranny for what it is and to refuse to participate in it. It's, a not, a, it's not a matter of, you know, get your guns, get your torches, get your pitchforks. We're going to go fight the tyranny and... We're, we're not to that stage. But one of the best ways you can fight it is to withdraw your consent. I, I'm going to use the word secession. I know that gets some people a little bit anxious. Oh, don't go there. But you've got to be willing to secede from polite society. I mean, what are the other choices? You go along with it wholeheartedly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join in here. Look, i got my little red book just like everybody else. I'm going to show everybody that I'm part of the party faithful. I think most people just choose to be quiet. I'm going to be very, very quiet. I'm going to just slip, slip around here in the shadows. I'm going to try and hide in the crowd and make sure nobody sees me and calls me out or anything. But that still allows that injustice to move forward. We need the John Galts who are willing to say what is truth and withdraw themselves from those things that they cannot reconcile with their own consciences. I wish you the best of luck on that.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, and particularly if you uh, land in the great state of Utah, you want to get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Call her at 435-703-4522. Stop by their office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Let's talk about tyranny. Not that this is my favorite subject, but would you recognize it if it came calling? See, I'm thinking that uh, I'm thinking that this is this is one of those things where a lot of people say, "Well, I think I would know tyranny if it was staring me in the face." But not everybody. Jeffrey Tucker has a marvelous primer on the truth about tyranny and how the force that drives tyranny isn't always some dictator. I mean, wouldn't it be easier for us if it was, if if tyranny was synonymous with some goose-stepping little dictator with a funny mustache? I mean, we could all recognize it and call it for what it is. Oh, yeah, that's definitely tyranny. But the truth of the matter is, authentic tyranny more often comes at the hands of our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, and our friends. Jeffrey Tucker says, in the simple model of tyranny we learned as school kids, there's a bad guy on top, or perhaps several because he needs advisors, and there's everyone else suffering under his yoke. And the job of freedom is to overthrow the powerful bad guy and set everyone free. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, I say the simple model, but I'm pretty sure that I believed this all my life. And there's more than a grain of truth in this. The biggest conflicts in world history always pit the government against the people. And this is for the simple reason long highlighted by the liberal tradition. Government uniquely enjoys the legal privilege of threatening and imposing violence. And that power is subject to abuse. But he says there's more going on here. He says, I recall reading the Black Book of Communism when it came out in 1999. And the chapter on China I found most riveting. It described the terrifying force called the Red Guard. It was what we today call a non-government organization, terrorists. More precisely, they were more convinced of Mao's teachings than Mao himself. They were blinded by red ideology. They were prepared to kill for it, and they did. Many millions died. In fact, it's reported even Mao himself was alarmed at their ferocity, which contributed to mass famine and eventually cannibalism. But he wasn't so alarmed as to put a stop to it. Mao's teachings had unleashed hell. He had to light the match, but the fuel that kept it raging came from below as neighbors turned on neighbors and families tore themselves apart. People competed with each other to see how much terror and how much oppression they could inflict on each other in the name of building communism and being loyal to the party. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, I thought, okay, surely this is a cultural habit unique to China, something to do with the collectivist conformist mindset. We know little to nothing about that in the West because we celebrate individualism and we're suspicious of power. We don't join mobs. We don't find meaning in conformity. We don't inflict violence on each other out of choice. Such an example of grassroots tyranny cannot be found in our civilization, or so I believed. 
But Jeff Tucker says during this pandemic period, we've found out otherwise. It all began in March of 2020 when millions of Americans were recruited into the ranks of what I used to jokingly call Corona justice warriors. They were our flagellants, hilarious in their garb and their maudlin sufferings. Over time, they became less of a joke and more of a threat. They began by policing our communities for mask wearing. They would hang around the grocery stores and yell at people for walking in the wrong direction. They would denounce you for standing too close to others. Tucker says, initially, I had assumed the nation would rise up against stay-at-home orders, church and school closures, and the discriminatory shutdowns on business that privilege big-box retailers over local merchants. But he says, I was wrong. Governments were able to recruit multitudes into the ranks of the irrational. Fear made people compliant. That compliance turned many people into champions of their own plight and lustful for mass conformity with the new despotism. And he says, it was a weird time, but it's hardly over. Just yesterday, he says, for instance, I wanted to help a person struggling up the stairs with a big box. She was heavily masked. I tried to help, but her eyes burned through me with fire. She shook her head right and left. I tried again, and she jumped back in anger. Okay, I guess my little act of generosity is not appreciated here. So I stepped away, and she went back to struggling by herself, happier in her plight than in taking the risk of having me infect her or something. Now, he says all these examples sound a bit petty, but actually the impulse behind these actions are much more threatening. They're tearing the country apart, and with the president's encouragement. With each speech, Biden looks for and finds scapegoats for public consumption. First it was the South, then the red states, and then the virus migrated, so he turned on the unvaccinated. Now he demonizes those who don't want it and encourages everyone else to do the same. The unvaxxed are the enemy, in exactly the way that philosopher Carl Schmitt said that eneminess is supposed to work. An arbitrary assignment of malice as a means of intensifying political power through social division. This is the essence of politics. It's conflict, contention, suffering, not social peace and prosperity that give life meaning. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says any regime that wants to stay in power needs to know this secret to hegemony. The desire to cleanse society of the enemy is what compels compliance. Every tyranny in history has depended on recruits to its own ranks from within the culture. And they believe the lie, knowing full well it is a lie. The lie allows them to participate in the purge. They become the willing executioners. And it's been true throughout history, regardless of the particular and shifting desiderata of the despotism of the moment. The cultural impulse behind the demonization of the unvaccinated is essentially puritanical. We have to get rid of unclean things and people. This is why we hear of the unvaccinated being turned away from hospitals and why there's near silence on the part of the media for the cruelty of their firings. Vaccination has come to serve as proxy for political loyalty, just like masking did last year. Holding the wrong political ideology makes you unclean. You should be purged. That's why the Biden administration is also not concerned about mass firings. They help to purify the country of recalcitrance. It's a Maoist impulse. And Biden has his own red guard. That's the Karens screaming on Twitter and in stores and wearing masks alone in cars. They are the grassroots tyrants. 
Historian Will Durant wrote, There is always in any society a minority whose instincts rejoice in the permission to persecute. It is a release from civilization. Jeffrey Tucker says he's right. It's the Joker. It's the Red Guard. It's the malcontents looking for some meaning to their miserable lives, and they think they found it in the persecution of others. Government benefits from this and unleashes the lust for the imposition of pain. The sadistic impulse spreads and spreads, threatening civilization itself. Hannah Arendt, in The Origins of Totalitarianism, offered the most prescient analysis, and some of her points are easily identified in our current environment. Quote, In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. The totalitarian mass leaders based their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that under such conditions, one could make people believe the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism. Instead of deserting the leaders who had lied to them, they would protest that they'd known all along the statement was a lie and that they admired their leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. End quote. Now, Jeff Tucker says the turning point comes when people believe the lie, knowing full well that it is a lie. Morality, truth, and facts no longer carry cultural weight. No one is truly safe in this world. Humor, for example, is out of the question in the midst of social, cultural, and political cleansing. Dissent in general is dangerous. The intensification of cancel culture in the midst of this crisis. It's not accidental. It's all part of the bloodlust that is unleashed in a world consumed by hyper-politicization and the generalized rejection of the liberal spirit. Now, there's more to this article, but I'm going to encourage you, click on the link, which you will find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and check it out for yourself. I strongly recommend subscribe to the Brownstone Institute. Jeffrey Tucker, I believe, is the editor-in-chief over there. Their information is very good. It's very principled, and it's a breath of fresh air in an otherwise fearful and distorted world. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Hey, if you're a first-time wrong thinker or a long-time questioner of... Whatever the, uh, the consensus is, I'm glad you're part of our audience today. Look, the battle for your mind is real. This show is about giving you the best information that I can find, not because I'm right and you have to believe it, but simply because it's good to understand the world around us. It's good to understand who we are and what we stand for. But ultimately, you're the one who gets to make up your mind. So whatever I share with you, 
It's it's yours to do with as you see fit. I'm just trying to get some thinking started. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, also by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. In fact, I'm going to say a few words here about life-saving food. Um, I, I stay in very close touch with my friend Kendall Whiting. He's the owner of Life-Saving Food, and he's the one who generously has been offering my listeners a 20% discount at checkout. 20%. All you have to do is enter the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, and he'll knock 20% off your price. And we've been v- feeling very fortunate here lately because, you know, there's there's been a good supply of food storage available. It's 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 been good to see as the store shelves are starting to, you know, see more and more gaps and more and more empty spaces. You're hearing about supply chain breakdown, and I'm sorry to tell you, it's beginning to hit the food storage and preparedness industry as well. Some of the major suppliers are saying they will be unable to get, for instance, fruits and vegetables until early next year, maybe, at the the earliest. Now, I don't tell you this to scare you. I'm just telling you this to to illustrate that window of opportunity that we count on being open, you know, for us to get what we need and, you know, to to avoid problems. You can't take for granted it's going to stay open indefinitely because it's not. The supply chain shortages appear to be growing. There's going to come a tipping point like we saw in uh, March of 2020 uh, uh, when, when people you know get a little bit panicky. Oh, there's not much in the stores. And they start grabbing whatever they can. You'd be really wise to stock up on the things you need and just be prepared. I want to be prepared to tighten your belt a notch as well. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to dive in here with just a couple of thoughts from Jeffrey Tucker. Um, I share this in the other hour of the show, but it's the truth about tyranny. And that's a word that uh, I, I use a lot. And I assume that we're all on the same page. I think we would all recognize tyranny. I'm not so sure, though. After reading this, I think a lot of people would recognize, well, you know, police all dressed up in riot gear and beating the crap out of people for being outdoors without a mask. You know, like you're seeing in Australia, among other places. Yeah, we recognize that as tyranny. Do you recognize though, the tyranny that comes at the hands of your neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers? That one's a little bit tougher, but I think that kind of tyranny is just as real as could be and actually growing. And this is, this is of concern to anybody who wants to live you know, and, and acknowledge the truth. Jeffrey Tucker says, think about this. He says, this hell of lockdowns, persecution, and purging started in good economic times. But he warns, we are now headed toward very bad economic times. We're being warned about double-digit inflation. In fact, he says double-digit inflation is already here, running 20% and above for producer inputs. The hashtag empty shelves is trending right now on Twitter. And Tucker says, I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. People blame supply chains even if they don't know what those are, but he says the brokenness runs much deeper. Then you have a labor crisis that's intensifying. Heating oil futures are soaring as we move into the winter. He says, I spoke to a famous epidemiologist yesterday who says he's expecting a wave of sickness this winter. Not just COVID, even though mass vaccination is not controlling infection or spread, but all the other diseases unleashed by the lockdowns that wrecked immune systems, stopped cancer screenings, and led to weight gain and drug and alcohol abuses. 
Depression and anxiety disorders affect hundreds of millions. Public anger has been unleashed at a level we've not previously experienced. And his point is, scapegoats are essential in such times. And there are always people ready and willing to inflict suffering on them. I probably should have warned you, this, uh, this, is, this is a little bit of bad news here, but Tucker says, you put all this together and you have the makings of impending disaster. I think his point is worth considering here because we've already turned on each other during these uh, manufactured bad times. And when things become really terrible, with food shortages and the spreading of ill health, he says, it's going to get worse. And we'll discover the truth about tyranny. When it comes, the driving force doesn't have to be the dictator. It's often our neighbors, coworkers, family, and friends. I don't want to make you feel hopeless, okay? This is not about, ah, we're doomed, doomed, I say. It's... It's more a matter of just looking squarely at the truth and calling it for what it is. There's some pretty dark stuff looming directly ahead of us in the headlights. And you and I don't personally have the power to vanquish all the tyranny from the earth today. I think a lot of us know who does, but, you know, we're waiting for his second coming, and that's, uh, that's it's, it's not going to happen until that time. But here's something that we can do. In fact, I'll, I'll modify that. Here's something that we must be willing to do. We have to be the kind of people who do not allow tyranny to move forward through us. And that can be tough. <clears throat> I don't know about you. When, when someone is, is pressuring me, when someone is leaning on me or trying to manipulate me, I get angry. I want to push back. I resent that kind of treatment. And I think any, any self-respecting person would. But anger alone is not going to be enough to turn the tide here. And, and to, to be an angry person who knows what they stand for, I don't know if that's a very healthy way to go through life. I think we've got to be committed. I think we've got to be solid and steady. If, if for no other reason, as an example to the people around us who are looking around, go, what can we do? What can we do? One person acting out of principle and acting with courage can have an incredible effect on the people around them. But anger can't be the main thing that drives us because it's just way too easy to co-opt that anger and to turn it into scapegoating and to turn it into violence and to turn it into that mob mentality. Come on, is there anybody within the sound of my voice who hasn't at some point lashed out in anger, whether in traffic or at your kid doing something stupid, and then afterwards regretted it and just felt like, you know what, that was really unnecessary. I didn't need to do that. I let my anger get the best of me. We've all been there, right? Well, my point is simply this. Anger alone is not going to shift the needle for us. It's not going to move that needle in the right direction. You know, I'm defiant. That's not the same thing as angry, but my defiance stems from the fact that I know what my rights are. I know that my consent is essential. Nobody can exercise power over me without my consent. And so rather than getting angry, I'm looking for clarity. That moral clarity that tells me, you know what, this in this case, you are absolutely justified in withholding 
your consent from those who would otherwise dictate to you this is how you have to do things. And you can choose your battles carefully, right? You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, fight everything. You know, I think of the guy, there's a great meme of a guy sitting at a table at this park somewhere, the big sign. I will argue with anyone about anything for free. (laughs) I love his honesty. And maybe it's good. Maybe it's therapeutic for him. But if you want to really have impact, and this is, this is what counts, you got to be the kind of person who can calmly and fearlessly state what the root problems are rather than just swatting around at symptoms and being known as, well, that's the person who's always complaining about what's wrong. If you can point out and zero in on, here are the root causes of the problem that we're facing, that's much more healthy than just simply ranting and raving a la Keith Oberman, you know, about, uh, you know, how everybody else is wrong and, you know, spittle flinging in the process. I know it's not easy, right? Those passions are there for a reason. And there are a few things that I'm more passionate about than the cause of personal liberty and conscience. But if we expect to have a good outcome, we've got to use higher methods than the people trying to separate us from our freedoms. This is one of the reasons why I'm here five days a week, trying to find uh, the, the clarity and speak encouragement to those who likewise are looking for it. You got to tell me how I'm doing. I do appreciate your input. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, I don't know if you would have any interest in this, but if you find value in what this program brings to the table... I would encourage you to consider either becoming a supporter of the show or possibly even becoming a sponsor. If you are if you are a business, you can click on a little link in there in the brianhideshow.com that uh, will that says advertise with us and it's it's very very affordable. There's different tiers of of sponsorship. I would encourage you to please check it out and just see if it's if it's a good fit and if it is, let's talk. So, my deepest respect goes to people who, when they encounter new truth, change their thinking. And Barry Weiss, who was an editor at one point for the New York Times, is one of those individuals that's been fascinating to watch her journey as she went from, you know, kind of a, I'm trying not to be pejorative in how I say this, but she was a, you know, vetted member of the MSM, and she, you know, she would, would toe the line, sometimes not even knowing why other than this is the consensus that we have here in the mainstream media. And yet because there was some editorial uh, tomfoolery going on, meaning that uh, the New York Times was, was telling her, you can't say this, you can't talk about this, because it's a truth that reflects uncomfortably on you know our political allies. And Barry Weiss, to her credit, she said, uh, you know, I, I can't work in that environment. And because she wasn't woke enough to, to toe the line, 
you know, she ended up resigning from, you know, one of the most prestigious jobs in journalism. And it's interesting how the current woke revolution portrays itself as, you know, the response and solution to injustice. While at the same time, it's actually creating more injustice than it ever solves. So Barry Weiss has this terrific article. I believe this is, uh, yeah, this is on commentary.org. We got here because of cowardice. We get out with courage. And she's encouraging people to say no to the woke revolution. Now, you can say, Brian, you're just, you know, lauding her article here because you happen to agree with her. I do happen to agree with her on this, but I agree with her also in the sense that I've seen integrity on her part. Meaning when she was given a choice of, hey, if you want to keep your comfortable position here, you just have to toe the line and ignore the truth when it's convenient. She wouldn't do it. And that put her on a different trajectory. It, it, it stripped her of some of the prestige. She paid a price for being honest with herself. And to me, that gives her credibility that's, that's very worthwhile. And if you're having trouble finding credibility in a lot of today's media, you know, this is, this is uh, one of the ways that I go about vetting the different voices that I consider. I'm not looking for somebody who has ideological purity in what they're trying to say. More than anything, what I look for these days is I look for light. Is the person who's reporting this, are they doing this in a way that brings light? Are they doing this in a way that brings anger? You do see the difference, right? Barry Weiss says, a lot of people want to convince you that you need a PhD or a law degree or dozens of hours of free time to read dense texts about critical theory to understand the woke movement and its worldview. But she says, you do not. You simply need to believe your own eyes and ears. So she says, let me offer the briefest overview of the core beliefs of the woke revolution, which are abundantly clear to anyone willing to look past the hashtags and the jargon. And she says it begins by stipulating that the forces of justice and progress are in a war against backwardness and tyranny. And of course, in a war, the normal rules of the game must be suspended. Indeed, she says this ideology would argue that those rules are not just obstacles to justice, but tools of oppression. They are the master's tools, and the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. So the tools themselves are not just replaced, but repudiated. And in so doing, persuasion, which is the purpose of argument, is replaced with public shaming. Moral complexity is replaced with moral certainty. Facts are replaced with feelings. Ideas replaced with identity. Forgiveness replaced with punishment. Debate is replaced with deplatforming. Diversity is replaced with homogeneity of, homogeneity of thought. And inclusion with exclusion. I mean, she's, she's batting a thousand here. Barry Weiss says, in this ideology, speech is violence, but violence when carried out by the right people in pursuit of a just cause is not violence at all. In this ideology, bullying is wrong unless you are bullying the right people, in which case it's very, very good. In this ideology, education is not about teaching people how to think. It's about re-educating them in what to think. In this ideology, the need to feel safe trumps the need to speak truthfully. She says, in this ideology, if you do not tweet the right tweet or share the right slogan, your whole life can be ruined. Just ask Tiffany Riley. 
a Vermont school principal who was fired, fired because she said she supports black lives, but not the organization Black Lives Matter. See, in this ideology, the past cannot be understood on its own terms, but must be judged through the morals and mores of the present. It's why statues of Grant and Washington are being torn down. And it's why William Paris, a UCLA lecturer and Air Force veteran, was investigated for reading Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail out loud in class. Because in this ideology, intentions don't matter. That's why Emmanuel Cafferty, a Hispanic utility worker at San Diego Gas and Electric, was fired for making what someone said he thought was a white supremacist hand gesture when in fact he was cracking his knuckles out of his car window. In this ideology, the equality of opportunity is replaced with the equality of outcome as a measure of fairness. If everybody doesn't finish the race at the same time, the course must have been defective. Thus the argument to get rid of the SAT, or the admissions tests for public schools like like Stuyvesant in New York or Lowell in San Francisco. She says, in this ideology, you are guilty for the sins of your fathers. In other words, you are not you. You are only a mere avatar of your race or your religion or your class. And that's why third graders in Cupertino, California, were asked to rate themselves in terms of their power and privilege in third grade. She says, in this system, we are all neatly placed on a spectrum of privileged to oppressed and were ranked somewhere on this spectrum in different categories, race, gender, sexual orientation, and class. Then we're given an overall score based on the sum of these rankings. Having privilege means that your character and your ideas are tainted. This is why one high schooler in New York tells her, students in his school are told, if you are white and male, you are second in line to speak. That's considered a normal and necessary redistribution of power. She says racism has been redefined. It's no longer about discrimination based on the color of someone's skin. Racism is any system that allows for disparate outcomes between racial groups. If disparity is present, as the high priest of this ideology, Ibram X. Kendi, has explained, racism is present. According to this totalitizing new view, or this totalizing new view, we are all either racist or anti-racist. To be a good person and not a bad person, you must be anti-racist. There is no neutrality. There is no such thing as not racist. And most important, she says, in this revolution, skeptics of any part of this radical ideology are recast as heretics. Those who do not abide by every single aspect of its creed are tarnished as bigots, subjected to boycotts, and their work to political litmus tests. The Enlightenment, as the critic Edward Rothstein has put it, has been replaced by the exorcism. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but what do you think? Is she making some sense here, or what? I'll have a link to Barry Weiss's article in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianheidshow.com, just in case you want to dig a little bit deeper. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad that you are part of my audience today. And look, I understand if, if I wanted a larger audience, there's a pretty simple formula to, to really go after the masses. Sensationalize whatever it is you're talking about. Dumb it down. But I think more of you than that. I think you are you are someone who deserves as as close to the straight up truth as I can possibly offer. I'm not saying that I've cornered the market on the truth, but I do my sincere best to find good, credible, nonpartisan information that goes way beyond just shouted bumper sticker slogans back and forth. And I'm sharing today an article here from Barry Weiss, who is uh, she was a former New York Times editor. She left the New York Times because they would not. They would not allow her to to write honestly. She wasn't sufficiently woke for whatever, you know, passes for the ideological litmus test of you are woke enough to work here. And so she's writing about uh, cancel culture and the woke revolution and why we have to resist the woke revolution. And she says we got here because of cowardice, but the courage is the way out. Barry Weiss says what we call cancel culture is really the justice system of this revolution. And the goal of the cancellations is not merely to punish the person being canceled. It's also to send a message to everyone else. Step out of line and you are next. And she says it's worked. A recent Cato study found 62% of Americans say they are afraid to voice their true views. Nearly a quarter of American academics endorse ousting a colleague for having a wrong opinion about hot-button issues like immigration or gender differences. Nearly 70% of students favor reporting professors if the professor says something that students find offensive. That's according to a Chali Institute for Global Innovation survey. And she asks, why are so many, especially so many young people, drawn to this ideology? It's not because they're dumb or because they're snowflakes or whatever Fox talking points would have you believe, all of this has taken place against the backdrop of major changes in American life. The tearing apart of our social fabric, the loss of religion, the decline of civic organizations, the opioid crisis, the collapse of American industries, the rise of big tech, successive financial crises, a toxic public discourse crushing student debt. She says an epidemic of loneliness, a crisis of meaning, a pandemic of distrust. It has taken place against the backdrop of the American dream's decline into what feels like a punchline. The inequalities of our supposedly fair liberal meritocracy clearly rigged in favor of some people and against others and so on. Now she has a quote here from Arthur Kessler writing in 1949 about his love affair with communism. I became converted because I was ripe for it and lived in a disintegrating society thrusting for faith. And Barry Weiss says the same might be said of this new revolutionary faith. And like other religions at their inception, this one has lit on fire the souls of true believers, eager to burn down anything or anyone that stands in its way. Now, Barry Weiss says, look, if you have ever tried to build something, even something small, you know how hard it is. It takes time. It takes tremendous effort. But tearing things down, that's quick work. 
And the woke revolution, she says, has been exceptionally effective. It has successfully captured the most important sense-making institutions of American life. Our newspapers, our magazines, our Hollywood studios, our publishing houses, many of our tech companies, and increasingly, corporate America. Just as in China under Chairman Mao, the seeds of our own cultural revolution can be traced to the academy, the first of our institutions to be overtaken by it. And our schools, public, private, parochial, are increasingly the recruiting grounds for this ideological army. And she has a few stories that illustrate this. David Peterson's an art professor at Skidmore College in upstate New York. He stood accused in the fevered summer of 2020 of engaging in hateful conduct that threatens black Skidmore students. What was the hateful conduct? Well, David and his wife, Andrea, went to watch a rally for police officers. He told the Skidmore student newspaper, given the painful events that continue to unfold across this nation... I guess we just felt compelled to see firsthand how all of this was playing out in our own community. So David and his wife stayed for 20 minutes on the edge of the event. They held no signs, participated in no chance. They just watched. And then they left for dinner. For the crime of listening, David Peterson's class was boycotted. A sign appeared on his classroom door. Stop. By entering this class, you are crossing a campus-wide picket line and breaking the boycott against Professor David Peterson. This is not a safe environment for marginalized students. Then the university opened an investigation into accusations of bias in the classroom. Nice. Across the country from Skidmore at the University of Southern California, a man named Greg Patton is a professor of business communication. Now, Patton was teaching a class on filler words such as um and like and so forth for his master's level course on communication for for management. Well, it turns out that the Chinese word for like sounds like the N-word. Students wrote the school's staff and administration accusing their professor of negligence and disregard. And they added, we are burdened to fight with our existence in society, in the workplace, and in America. We should not be made to fight for our sense of peace and mental well-being at school. Oh, boy. That's just ripe with some subjective uh, determinations, right? Now, in a normal, reality-based world, there's just one response to such a claim. You misheard. But that was not the response. This was, quote, It is simply unacceptable for faculty to use words in class that can marginalize, hurt, and harm the psychological safety of our students. That was Dean Jeffrey Garrett writing this. He also said, understandably, this caused great pain and upset among the students. And for that, I am deeply sorry. It's just a big old struggle session. And Barry Weiss points out, this rot hasn't been contained simply to higher education. At a mandatory training earlier this year in the San Diego Unified School District, Bettina Love, an education professor who believes that children learn better from teachers of the same race, accused white teachers of spirit-murdering black and brown children and encouraged them to undergo anti-racist therapy for white educators. San Francisco's public schools didn't manage to open their schools during the pandemic, but the board decided to rename 44 schools, including those named for George Washington and John Muir, before suspending the plan. Meantime, one of the board members declared Merritt racist and Trumpian. Now she goes on and on. She has several other great examples. And then she asks the question, how did we get here? 
She says there are a lot of factors that are relevant to the answer, institutional decay, you know, the tech revolution, the monopolies it created, the arrogance of the elites, poverty, the death of trust. And she says all of these things should be examined because without them, we would have neither the far right nor the cultural revolutionaries now clamoring at America's gates. But she says there is one word we should linger on because every moment of radical victory turned on it. And that word is cowardice. The revolution has been met with almost no resistance by those who have the title CEO or leader or president or principal in front of their names. The refusal of adults in the room to speak the truth, their refusal to say no to efforts to undermine the mission of their institutions, their fear of being called a bad name, and that fear trumping their responsibility, that's how we got here. Now, Alan Bloom had the radicals of the 60s in mind when he wrote that a few students discovered that pompous teachers who catechized them about academic freedom could, with a little shove, be made into dancing bears. Now, a half century later, those dancing bears hold named chairs at every important elite sense-making institution in the country. As Douglas Murray has put it, the problem is not that the sacrificial victim is selected. The problem is that the people who destroy his reputation are permitted to do so by the complicity, silence, and slinking away of everyone else. That's about as naive as Robespierre thinking he could avoid the guillotine. And Barry Weiss says, if cowardice is the thing that has allowed all of this, the force that would stop this cultural revolution can be summed up by, by one word, courage. And the courage comes from people you might not expect, and she gives some great examples of what that courage looks like. I don't know what it takes to, to bring courage into your life, but Barry Weiss says, first off and foremost, it means the unqualified rejection of lies. She says, do not speak untruths, either about yourself or anyone else, no matter the comfort offered by the mob. Do not genially accept the lies told to you. If possible, she says, be vocal in rejecting claims you know to be false. Courage can be contagious. Your example may serve as a means of transmission. Please check out the article. There's a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I agree with her. Courage is what we need right now, specifically your courage. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. In this final segment, I want to uh, I want to share with you something that I hope is useful. Just from the standpoint of, you know, it, it wasn't just in the last 20 months that gun sales and ammo sales have been off the charts. I think ever since Obama's presidency, people have been buying guns at an almost unprecedented rate. And while I'm someone who loves the shooting sports and has for, for many, many years, there's also some concern here because I think for some folks there may be some gray areas about, you know, when is it appropriate to bring the personal firearm into the equation? And I came across a most fascinating article, first published in 2017, then uh, updated in June of this year, Social Aggression versus Asocial Violence, and Why Knowing the Difference Can Save Your Life. 
And this is from uh, an instructor by the name of Tim Larkin. That'll be a familiar name for some of you who've uh, who've been in, into uh, self-defense and self-protection. But there is a huge difference between social aggression and asocial violence. And I'm going to share this with you, even though this... This can be a little bit of a dark topic because nobody wants to believe that, uh, you know, they're ever going to encounter a day where, where someone might try to take their life. And I'm only speaking from the, the mild authority of someone who has, you know, very actively focused on understanding when it's appropriate versus when it isn't and has sought out the best training that I can painfully afford for about the last 20, 25 years. But you do not want to look at your firearm as it's the solve-it-all tool. That's kind of how the state behaves. And Tim Larkin has a really great bit of advice on the difference between social aggression and asocial violence. And if you're going to take responsibility for your own protection, this is some of the best information you'll ever get. And if you've come to the conclusion the state is not going to be there to protect me, definitely this is information you should know. Social aggression, as uh, Tim Larkin describes it, is more or less, uh, it's, it's the pecking order in society. It's about intimidation, it's about bullying, and it's the kind of thing that you would see, for instance, in a middle school. You know, the bullies in aggressor mode, stalking after the victim, cutting them off, pushing them, taunting them, getting in their envelope of personal space, sometimes looming over them like a beast. And sometimes, occasionally... The victim snaps. They reach a point where they just uh, they just stop. They stiffen. There's a shift, and there is going to be a fight. And of course, the kids all get excited. They're chanting. There's going to be a fight. Everybody meet at the bike rack after school. Woo! You know, fight, fight, fight. They're chanting in unison. And if that fight happens. This is what Tim Larkin calls social aggression. It's a quasi-violent scenario that stems from conflict. And the purpose is jockeying within the social hierarchy. Because there's a couple of things that could happen here. Uh, Both fighters' position in the school's social hierarchy are in flux. And there's social information to be gleaned from it. This is why the crowd wants to gather around. What's going to happen? The bully is occupying a position of power. When his target finally fights back, that means the bully's position is being challenged. And when it's all over... Will there be a change in social standing? Will the bully get his comeuppance and be reduced to a pariah or even a laughingstock? Will his victim be elevated to the position of nerd hero or defender of the meek and helpless? Or will the bully get the upper hand and the social status remain the same? Now, Tim Larkin says this kind of aggression isn't exactly tolerated, right? This is the kind of thing that teachers usually break up and punish, after all. But it doesn't destroy the social order in school either. And afterward, the kids will be talking about it excitedly in the lunchroom for the rest of the week. But he says there's another way that these playground fights and bully takedowns can go. But these aren't the kind of incidents that show up on YouTube. Okay, the victim has had enough. He's been bullied. He's stiffened and bowed up in his mind. And it's almost always a he. He has no interest in fighting back at the center of a ring of classmates. So instead, the day comes where he simply opens his backpack, pulls out a revolver, and shoots his bully in the head at point-blank range. That is asocial violence. And of course, there's no excited chanting for a fight when the bully drops dead. 
No one's hosting the bully's victim on his sho- on their shoulders and marching him triumphantly around the schoolyard. There's just complete and total pandemonium. Everybody runs. Nobody looks back. There is no social information to be gathered there. Asocial violence, he says, is violence that has nothing to do with communication or reshuffling the pecking order. It's the kind of violent interaction we instinctively run from. The kind in which there's just mayhem, death, misery, and horror. The knockout game, by the way, is a, is a kind of asocial violence. The difference between asocial violence, asocial violence rather, and uh, and that uh, social aggression is. At the end of the day, with that social aggression, the bully and the victim may fight. They may actually end up to be friends at some point. But with asocial violence, it's purely about destru- destruction. Here's how, here's how Tim Larkin describes it. He says, it's essential we understand this distinction because social aggression is about competition. Where do I stand in the pecking order? Asocial violence is about destruction. Competition has rules. Destruction has none. Social aggression is about communication, implicitly with status indicators, but explicitly with lots of taunting and posturing. And you know you are dealing with asocial violence when there is no talking. Open your mouth, you're likely to eat a lightning-fast punch or a bullet. And if there's one reliable way to distinguish between these two kinds of violent encounter, it's the presence or absence of communication. Someone comes up from you behind as you're walking home from dinner, puts a gun to your head and says, give me your money or I'll blow your brains out. That's fundamentally an act of social aggression. Now, it may feel asocial because you feel powerless when you're taken by surprise. How you feel, though, has nothing to do with whether the situation is social or asocial. Because what matters is the intent and the action of the attacker. In this scenario, his primary motive isn't to destroy, it's to dominate. So he's using the threat of violence to make it easier to get what he wants. And the difference is, if the situation were asocial, if what he wanted to do was destroy you, he's not going to say anything. You probably wouldn't even hear the hammer cock before the trigger got pulled and the bullet left the barrel. So schoolyard brawls, bar fights... They aren't usually life or death situations. They're just kind of a primitive form of communication. It's that that monkey up, you know, monkey dance that communicates, I'm agitated, I'm mad, I want to run this other guy off my property. And the other guy's responding, I'm not willing to be run off my property, I'm going to stand my ground. They're just trying to exert social dominance. And even in the case of, you know, street fights and, and schoolyard fights, people rarely punch their opponent's throat or kick them in the testicles or gouge out their eyes. They don't try to inflict permanent damage. But as asocial violence, on the other hand, he says, is incredibly streamlined. It's quiet. It happens suddenly and unmistakably. It's one person beating another person with a tire iron till he stops moving. It's stabbing somebody 37 times. It's pulling a gun and firing round after round until he goes down and then stepping close to make sure that you put another one in his brain. They're acts without rules where anything goes. Now he says, why would I harp on the difference here? Here's the advice that we should all take to heart. Social aggression is avoidable. 
and you should avoid it. If someone's trying to bully you or trying to pick a fight with you, it really is about the pecking order, typically. Now, if someone says, give me your wallet and uh, or I'll blow your brains out, you could give him your wallet and live to see another day. But you can rarely talk your way out of asocial violence. The only way to protect yourself from asocial violence is you have to be able to render your attacker either incapacitated, unconscious, or dead. That means you need to be able to recognize the threat and you need to, need to be able to counter the threat. That doesn't mean that you have to become, you know, some version of Rambo that looks like you. But some training is extremely handy. And I guess there's one other point here, too, and that is that social aggression can quickly turn into asocial violence. But you need to know the difference. You need to be prepared to act accordingly. I'm sorry, this is, this is kind of a difficult subject. It's dark. None of us wants to believe that there are people out there who are willing to act in evil ways. Until you encounter one of those people, you may believe that ah, there's nobody really like that. But you got to know when it's appropriate and when it isn't. And if it's something that you can avoid, by all means, avoid it. If it's something that can't be avoided, you need to know what to do. You need to have skill at arms. I've got the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.